This morning, uh, we're going to continue in Matthew chapter 18. I know you're surprised by this um, because, you know, we're still in the book of Matthew a year and a half later. But we're going to uh, try to wrap up chapter 18. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Matthew 18. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, we'd like to give you one. Um, just raise your hand, and then Luke, since this is last Sunday, he'll go find one for you. Um, they're in the front room, and, and, and he'll bring you one. So they're actually right on the back counter. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Luke will get you one. But we want you to have Bibles and to use them. Um, most of the verses I'm going to put on the screen, but our passage from Matthew 18, when I go to read it, I'm, going to just, I'm not going to have it on the screen. It's too many, too many words, so you'll have to follow along in your own Bible. Uh, we started chapter 18 with a question. And the question in, in Matthew 18.1 was this. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, this is the disciples talking. They're with Jesus, and they're like, so, which one of us is top disciple here? Which one of us is going to be in charge when you're gone? Because you're telling us that you're leaving. Which one of us is the most important one? Which ones are the ones that are going to be the running the show and being your mouthpiece and, and second in command when, you, when you're not here? Um, and this idea of, of greatness and of having charge and passing on charge is certainly not foreign to us, is it? If I was going on vacation, I would assign somebody the next place in command, right? So whether that's at work, if I leave, I know that David's um, in charge, right? So he's the, the next in command if I'm gone. Actually, we co-lead, so we're kind of both in charge. And if one of us isn't here, the other one just automatically is. If both of us were gone, we would just dump it all on Doug or, or Ken and say, good luck, God bless, pray for you, and see what happens. So we're used to passing on responsibility when we leave, and so this idea of the disciples wondering, who's going to be in charge when you're gone, it shouldn't surprise us. It also shouldn't surprise us because they live in a Roman society that had a lot of military structure, and people in charge, and people under people, and people under people, and et cetera, et cetera. But the response to that question is this whole teaching discourse we get in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus doesn't just say, well, Peter, it's you. He says, let me tell you a little bit about the way the kingdom of God works because kingdom living is different from what you see in your society. It's different than Roman living. It's different than North American living. It's, it's different than what you're used to or what you're thinking. So, Jesus launches into this series of teachings trying to help people understand that the kingdom of God is kind of upside down compared to the kingdoms of this world. And if you're going to be great in the kingdom of God, it means making some changes and adjustments in the way that you view others, in the way that you view the world, in the way that you live. It's about thinking of the two greatest commandments. Anybody know what those two great commandments are? Jesus quoted them. He summed up the entire Old Testament law and prophets in two commands. The first command is what? Love God with all your heart and soul and mind or and strength. And the second one is love others as yourself. It's about taking that filter, that lens, and applying it to situations outside the family of God and inside the family of God. And what does that look like when we do that? When we read this chapter, we realize that starting in the beginning, there were little children. And there were little children, and there were lost sheep, and there were sinning brothers, and there was an indebted servant. And they're all different ways of referring to 
brothers and sisters in the church. Now, have you ever been to a church where everybody just refers to each other as brother or sister? Maybe you grow up like that. If you didn't and you walk in, it's creepy, isn't it? They're all like, hey, brother Mike, hey, brother, you know, what's going on here? You know, don't drink the Kool-Aid. Like, you just wonder what's going on. If you grew up in church where that's, you're like, well, why would they say that? Because when you understand the theology of church, you understand that through Christ, we are adopted into the family of God, and that makes us all brothers and sisters. And just throwing that little, you know, title ahead of it, Brother Luke, Brother Isaac. In Spanish-speaking communities, it's, it's weird if you don't say brother or sister. Is that what you're saying? All right. In, in a lot of churches it is, but, but it's a reminder that we are family, and we are, I'm sorry to, if that was an, a, like a revelation to you, but because some of you like may not have the, the best family situation. Some of you may not love being a part of a family. Um, when you become a Christian, you become part of a family, like it or not, and the people around you are your brothers and sisters. And so these phrases of sheep and brother or sister or little children are reminders that we're all part of a community of a family if we've accepted Christ as our Savior. And each of us at times in our lives is probably like the little child or like the lost sheep and can relate to the different situations that we've read about. But chapter 18 is about how we treat each other as a community in those situations. And I have to be honest with you, the church is made of broken, imperfect people like me. Therefore, we don't get it right all the time, do we? So Jesus is trying to remind the, the disciples and you and I today what we should be doing and how we should be living because we don't always get it right and because there will always be problems in the church. So they start out with don't overlook or don't neglect or turn away from those that society sees as less. Can we say that there is, a, there is quite a bit of prejudice in churches today where we tend to preference those who have the right clothes or have the right look or come a certain way and there seems to be, can be a, a prejudice against those that don't fit that mold. Maybe they come in and they're not washed the same way you are or dress the same way you are. Maybe they don't have the same things you have. Jesus said, listen, don't despise the little ones. Don't reject those that are low in our society, but accept them. Accept them. It also says that if we reject people and push them away from God, that we will be punished for that. Then it goes on to say, if you see your brother sinning or your sister sinning, well, let me tell you something that's going to happen, right? Because none of us is perfect. If you see your brother or sister sinning, you're to go to them individually and confront them about it and say, listen, what you're doing is wrong. I want you to realize that that's a community thing. It was you individually with that person. It never went to the leadership. Of the, it hasn't gone to the leadership of the church yet or anything like that. It's the individual responsibility of being part of a community. If you see a brother or sister in sin, you go to them. If they don't listen, you take one or two others with you and you go back again. And if they don't listen, you, take, you bring the whole assembly in. It doesn't say you call the elders and they deal with the person. You bring in the whole assembly. It's a community experience, this idea of living together and being accountable to each other. 
but there's still more to learn. That passage that David gave us last week answers the question of what do you do when you're in a community and somebody is doing something wrong and you confront them and they don't want to listen? Well, you treat them as if they're not part of the family. But you still need to love them to try to help them become part of the family again. But you may remove them from positions in the church or even membership in the, in the church body as part of the church body. But that's the person who doesn't repent, who doesn't change. The, the next question is, well, what do you do if they do repent? How do you deal with that? We kind of like the discipline side of things. You know, you confront somebody, they don't pay attention, you, you slap them, right? But what if you confront somebody and they say, yeah, I'm sorry? You don't slap them, right? But you still might want to, but you can't. So now what do you do? And so if we kind of think of the summary of this passage, Luke gives us a very concise summary. Luke, the gospel author, not the one who played piano this morning. Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. Jesus said to his disciples, Offenses will certainly come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and if he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So be on your guard, and if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, that's rough. That's really rough. Hold that thought for a minute. We're going to come back to it. As we continue through Matthew 18, we came to Matthew chapter 18, verse 5. And it said this, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you've won your brother. Now, some translations just read if your brother sins, and other translations read if your brother sins against you. I really don't think it matters. There, scholars are split on how to translate that. In the end, every sin that we commit affects the others around us. So a brother who sins still sins against you as part of the body of Christ. So it's, it's synonymous. But that's not really a phrase we use all the time, right? It, when we think about sinning, we think about an offense against God. We don't often think about an offense against somebody else. For instance, if I just take those two phrases, and I, if I say, if a, if a brother sins, are you thinking that that is something he's done wrong in God's eyes or something he's done wrong to you? If I just leave it, if a brother sins, is the focus on their relationship with God or their relationship with you? Well, my brain automatically went to the relationship with God. But if I read, if a sister sins against you, now all of a sudden it's about our relationship, not my relationship with God. The object is usually God when we're talking about sin. So what does it mean to have somebody sin against you? You're not perfect. To sin against God is to break his divine decrees. It's to go against his will. It's to do things that wouldn't be pleasing to him. So what does that mean if it says somebody sins against you? I mean, I'm not God. So how would they sin against me? Well, they cannot love me. Let me unpack that a little bit. If the two great commandments are to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then yes, we can sin against God when we don't choose to love him the way we should. And that can show up in so many ways. 
But if the second greatest commandment is to love our neighbor as ourself, and I fail to do that with one of you, then I have sinned against you. And that might show up in a number of ways. It might show up by ignoring you. It might show up by not giving you the dignity that you deserve as a child of God, treating you like a second-class citizen. It might show up in me gossiping about you, talking about you behind your back. It could show up in me doing anything against you, calling names, stealing from you. The list goes on and on. From a biblical worldview, it doesn't matter if you're sinning against God or against others. It's wrong. And this passage is saying that when you sin, there needs to be repentance. And if there's repentance, there needs to be forgiveness. So this passage, 18 verse um, 15, if a brother sins, if a brother sins against you, go to them. And then we learn what happens if they don't repent. If they're like, yeah, well, that's your problem. What's that phrase? It sounds like a you problem. Isn't that one of the new ones? Yeah, it sounds like a you problem. And they just kind of tune it out, don't pay attention. All right, then you need to go through that process that's talked about for, the, for that, hopefully for restoration, because that's the ultimate goal. But what happens if they do repent? We saw that in Luke 17, 3 and 4. It said, if he repents... You have to forgive him. And if he repents seven times, if he, if he sins against you seven times in the same day and says, I repent, you have to forgive him. That's pretty, pretty, pretty rough. Um, I have a really bad story about this uh, from my own life. So early on in my marriage, um, why Laura married me, I still don't know other than the grace of God. But early on in my marriage, I was a little less mellow than I am now and um, a little less merciful and compassionate than I am now. And I think that comes from insecurity, honestly. I think when you're first married, your first couple years, there's a lot of insecurity and everything that happens um, that's an offense seems to be a really big deal and it really seems to be like um, something that's hard to forgive or let go of. And I remember, I don't remember the exact details of what Laura did that hurt me but I remember us having a conversation. It was in our first year of marriage, and she apologized for what she did, and I told her I forgave her. And it wasn't long after that, and the same thing happened. And I was hurt even more because she did this again. And I remember telling her that. And so she said, I'm sorry. Now, I said something that was biblically wrong, stupid, hurtful, unmerciful. Did I mention stupid? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I said these words, and I'm not proud of them. I said, if you were really sorry the first time, you wouldn't have done it again. I hurt her so bad with that comment. In Luke, we're told, if she came and did that same thing wrong seven times in one day, I'm supposed to forgive her. I wasn't even close to that. Twice in a month, and I'm going to harbor that. This idea of how many times do we forgive and how do we keep forgiving 
And, and how do we even forgive when somebody wrongs us? Is what Jesus is addressing now with his disciples in chapter 18. He says, this is what you do to someone who doesn't repent. And then Peter pops this question in chapter 18, verse 21. He says this, he approached him and said, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven? Hmm. Now I imagine that though we might not verbalize it, we've all had a similar question at times, right? How many times? How many times? I share with you a very vulnerable, horrible time in my life. But have you ever wondered that? How many times do I have to forgive this person? How many times? For the same thing. We might even try to, to justify it um, by, by qualifying. You know, I, I'll forgive somebody a lot of times, but I, I don't know if I can forgive them for the same thing. Of course, Luke takes care of that as well. Well, as rabbinic teaching would have it, teachings of the rabbis, the Jewish rabbis, they would have sided with Laura as well. But Jesus says seven times um, for the same thing in the same day in, in Luke. The rabbinical teaching of the day was three times for the same offense. They actually had a law on it. There's this, this book called the Talmud that they would put laws into, um, teachings, traditions, laws, stories. Um, I have a couple of them that I actually uh, copied and pasted into my notes. One of the rabbis said, anyone who asks forgiveness of his friend should not ask more than three times. Because as it is stated in Genesis 50, 17, please, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers for their, and their sin, for they do evil to you, and now please forgive. So since please is used three times, we should forgive three times. Now, by the way, I looked at that verse in my translations, and I only found please in there twice. So I'm going to have to do some more meditation on that to find out where the third one came from. But that was the rabbi's logic. Since please is in that verse three times, three times is the maximum amount of times you should ask for forgiveness for something with a friend. Okay. Um, the Talmud also develops this requirement for human forgiveness into a full-fledged legal institution. It becomes like a law. First, the request for forgiveness must be public. One rabbi said that um, you have to actually create three lines of three people, nine witnesses, before you go to your brother and ask for forgiveness. It must be public in front of three lines of three people. Um, and... <laughs> To make, to make that statement. And then, when you ask forgiveness from your friend, you should not seek it more than three times. So again, playing off that number three. Three lines of three people, but you shouldn't ask for forgiveness for the same thing more than three times. This was part of the rabbinic teaching. So even according to that, I failed Laura miserably. Um, so when Peter comes to Jesus in Matthew 18, 21, and he says to Jesus, how many times should I forgive? If you understand that traditional teaching of the day would have been three times as plenty, Peter's suggestion of seven, it's pretty good, right? I mean, he jumps from the Trinity number to the number of completeness. Doesn't it make sense? If seven is the number of completeness, how many times should I forgive? Well, seven's the number of complete. If I'm seven times, I've completely forgiven, you know, it's, it's all good. It's, it's, it makes sense. I have a feeling that's where he was jumping. And what Jesus doesn't say is, oh, come on, Pete, really? And he doesn't disrespect Peter at all. He doesn't challenge his answer as far as saying it's a dumb idea. He says, no, Peter, of course not. It needs to be a lot more than that. 
which I'm sure just had Peter baffled because he was already being gracious. Now, depending upon your Bible, your version may say um, in the next verse, verse 22, your version may say 77 times. How many of you have that? How many of you have 70 times 7? Interesting, isn't it? So, weird little nerd fact here. Uh, 70 times 7 shows up in the CJB, the New Living Translation, the Christian Standard, the Lexham, the New King James, and the 1995 New American Standard Edition. However, 77 times shows up in the 2020 New American Standard. They switched their position on it, the NIV and the ESV. So Bible translations are split on whether this number should be 70 times 7 or 77. Do you think it matters? I don't think you're going to hit the limit either way. I'll throw that out there. But I love the reference to 77. And I think that there's a reason why I would pick 77 over the two numbers. And it jumps back to a guy in the book of Genesis. That number 77 has only shown up three times in the Old Testament in the Law and Prophets. And once it refers to another person. Genesis chapter 4, starting in verses... um, 13 and 15, we read the story of Cain. Cain killed Abel, deserved death. God spared him, exiled him, showed him mercy, and then showed him even more mercy by protecting him. So God said to Cain, you've killed your brother. And and, as a matter of fact, Cain's response when God confronted him and said, where's your brother? Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? If you are listening to Matthew chapter 18, Jesus would say, yes. And God says, listen, I I know what you did to your brother, and so I'm going to banish you. I'm going to exile you away from Eden. And Cain says, you can't. My punishment is too great to bear. And and since you're banishing me today from the face of the earth, I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer of the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me, he says. So God actually says, in verse 15, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so whoever found him would not kill him. So he said, whoever kills Cain, God says, I will take revenge on him seven times over. Now, after this, we read the genealogy of Cain. And if you're like me, genealogies are like, okay, thanks God for putting that in there. Right? Anybody else like that? How many of you just like, yes, a genealogy? You are? That's awesome. There's some great stuff in genealogies. There really is. And the way that they use numbers and all sorts of things, really cool. As you get to the genealogy of Cain, five generations later, there's a scoundrel in there. Um, There's this guy named Lamech. He violated God's plan from the beginning. In the beginning, God created man and woman and said, let the two become one. Right? For this reason, a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, and the two become one flesh. So this idea of one man, one woman together, still something we hold strongly to today. Uh, Lamech took two wives. And he violated God's creation beyond that by killing people. And then he wrote a song about it to sing to his two wives. All right, that's a little warped. Ladies, how many of you would find it romantic if your husbands wrote a song to you and your other wife, his other wife, about how he's 
murdered people just because they bothered him and how great he is. How many of you think, like, that's, that's, yes, I want a man like that, right? No, nobody does. But here's his song. I have it on the screen, right? Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, wives of Lamech, and pay attention to my words. For I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And if Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then Lamech, it will be 77 times. What? Lamech is boasting about how important he is, how great he is. He's taken the mercy of God that was shown to Cain and made it a banner to justify his evil actions and says, listen, if God was going to avenge Cain's death, anybody who takes me out, vengeance should go on them 77 times because I'm that much more important than both Cain and God. Take me out, you're going to pay the price 77 times over. The disciples wanted to know from Jesus, back in chapter 18, verse 1, who is the greatest? Is it the people like Lamech, who take what they want by force and disregard God's law, but have cities that they own and control and armies underneath them? Are they the ones that are the greatest? Hmm. Do you see why Jesus might have seemed, picked this seemingly arbitrary number? There's a hyperlink that the Jews that were listening, the disciples that were listening, would get. Wait, 77. That reminds me of this guy, Lamech. He was a really bad guy. Really bad guy. And Jesus is saying, let me tell you what the kingdom of heaven is not like. When we define greatness by our standards, we're not great. If you have to announce to everyone that you are great, you probably aren't. Can we just admit that? Any of you nervous when you go to a restaurant and it says, you know, A1, best ever? Like, does that make you nervous? I don't go to those restaurants usually because like, if you've got to tell me you are, you're probably not. If you have to tell me you're great, you, you probably aren't. Greatness comes from being image bearers of God and being reflections of him on this earth. And we're to show the same kind of mercy that God showed, not the same disdain that Lamech showed. So in this 77... Lamech is boasting about how he should be avenged 77 times if he's wronged. And in our teaching in chapter 18, Jesus said, listen, if somebody wrongs you, you don't avenge yourself 77 times over. You forgive them 77 times over. You see the contrast there? One is about getting what I deserve, and the other is about giving mercy two different worldviews. The kingdom view is upside down from the worldview. So Jesus then launches into a parable to show what this looks like. And I love this parable. It's a great parable. Uh, Matthew chapter 18. This one I don't have all the verses for, so turn in your Bibles or tap in your app to Matthew 18, 23. And we're going to read down through this one together. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle accounts, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought before him. And since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. Well, 
After this, the servant fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. And then the master of that servant had compassion. He released him and forgave him the loan. Well, that servant went out and found another, one of his fellow servants, who owed him a hundred denarii. And he grabbed him, started choking him, and said, Pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him in prison until he could pay back what was owed. Well, when the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. And then, after he had summoned him, his master said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until they could pay back everything that was owed. So also my Father in heaven will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from the heart. How many of you have heard this parable before? Anybody? This one I've heard before, and it's pretty graphic. It's also an amazing lesson not only on forgiveness, but on the incredible mercy of God. It really is. So the king is settling accounts, and he wants people who owe him money to pay up. And the first servant owes 10,000 talents. Does that sound like a lot of money to you? Sure. Like, like what, do you, what, what sounds like a lot? Like, if, if 10,000 talents, that, what would you equate that to? We don't conduct business in talents, do we? So I think our brains naturally, like, automatically switch it to, oh, we have like $10,000. Well, it's not really the way talents work. Um, we don't really conduct talents, uh, conduct business in talents. So we really don't have a comprehension of what 10,000 talents is. It was actually the highest monetary standard um, of its day. And a talent was about the amount of weight a soldier could carry on, its back, on his back, about 75 pounds of gold or silver, depending upon the standard used. So a talent was the equivalent of about 75 pounds of gold. He owed 10,000 of those. Now that really probably doesn't connect, so let's math together, shall we? How many of you love math? And you're like, no, I hate math. Okay, it's okay, it's, it's easy math. If you love math, this is great stuff, right? All right, how much did he owe? Well, the price of one ounce of gold as of last night, was $1,932. There's 16 ounces in a pound, making a pound $30,912. A talent's approximately 75 pounds, therefore one talent is about $2,318,400. The man owed 10,000 of these. It's about $23,184,000,000. Does that seem a little bit bigger than 10,000 talents to you? Because it's certain to me. 10,000 talents, like, oh, yeah, you can pay that back. It's like $10,000. $23 trillion. B billion dollars, I'm sorry, billion dollars. That's a lot of money, right? That's what the first servant owed the king. Astronomical amount of money. Now, here's another way you can look at talents, all right? Um, how much did he owe? One denarius equals a day's wage. One talent is, equals approximately 6,000 denarii. The man owed 
10,000 talents or 60 million days worth of wages. Which means that it would take you 164,383 years to pay it back. So the king demands payment and what's the servant's reply? Be patient with me and I will pay you everything. What are the chances of that happening? Nil, right? That's the point. And that's exactly the point that Jesus is trying to drive home with his disciples. And when he used these numbers, he said, listen, there's a man that went, uh, there's a, a, a king that went to one of his servants and his servant owed him $23 billion and demanded payment. And that servant said, please be patient, I'll pay it back. The guy was a laborer at a convenience store. But he said, be patient, I'll pay it back. And you'd be like, there's no way he's ever paying that back. He won't even earn a fraction of that in his lifetime. It's not possible. There's no way to pay back 164,383 years worth of wages. It doesn't happen, right? So the plea of the servant to be patient, I'll pay back everything, he says, is really empty. Let me just show you if we even translated this into our modern society today. Um, let's contextualize it. Are you familiar with a guy named Jeff Bezos? Right? One of the, if not the richest people in the world. He makes $6.7 million a day. If he had this debt and he earned that much per day, seven days a week, and did not live off of any of it, just use it to pay back the debt, it would take him nine and a half years to pay it back. Now, he's an unusual case. He's the owner, he's not the worker. A higher end worker at Amazon would be one of their engineers and on average they make $120,000 a year as a software engineer. It goes higher and lower, but an average according to pay scale is $120,000 a year. That means that if one of his workers, the engineer wanted to pay back that debt, he would be able to do it if he used all of his earnings, not for any living expenses, just to pay back the debt, in 193,200 years. 193,200 years. It just wouldn't happen. In other words, there is no paying it back. There's no way the servant could ever pay this debt, and that was the point. The words that the servant said were meaningless. They were just grovel. They were empty. He said to his master, oh, please don't throw me in prison. I'll pay you back every dime, even though there's absolutely no way I could ever possibly do that. Even if I, other people owed me money and I collected everything that they owed me, I might be able to take a small chunk out of it, but it's not going to equal that. What drives... Oh, I don't want to get that myself here. That was the response. So what is the master's response? Matthew 18, 24. The, the master of the servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him his debt. That's it. Tremendous debt. No way he could ever pay it. The master has compassion, releases him, cancels the debt. Just done like that. $23 billion worth. Gone. So, it's an incredible act of mercy, wouldn't you say? So what does a servant do? He goes and he finds someone who owes him 100 days wages. 
Remember, he owes about 60 million days wages. <laughs> Somebody owes him 100 days wages. And he grabs him by the throat and chokes him and says, pay back what you owe me. What drives someone to act this way? Greed? A chance to get ahead? I'm free from my debt. Now, if I can just get this money that these other people owe me, I can finally have some freedom, and I can do what I want, and I can, I can reach my goals. I don't have this burden over me anymore. What, what causes people to get to the point where they're willing to forget the mercy they've received and demand and choke someone who owes them so much less? The response of the second servant is this. The servant fell down and said, be patient with me and I will pay you back. Does that sound familiar? Very similar to the words of the first servant to his master, right? Second servant says to the first servant, be patient with me, I'll pay it back to you. Now, was there a chance he could pay it back? Yes, this one, yes. A hundred days wages? He could probably pay that back in a couple of years time. He worked really hard at it because he still has to live off of something, right? It could be paid back. But instead, the wicked servant takes him, throws him in prison. Now, when you throw somebody in prison, they can't earn wages. So it seems like they'd be counterproductive, right? Hopefully, you have some family that care about you. Because what would happen is his family would then have to earn the money, kind of like posting bail, to get the person out of jail and pay the debt back. So they would usually try to do that faster. Throwing someone in prison for their debt was an effort to get the family members to all chip in and pay back the debt faster to the person that it was owed to. Very selfish thing to do because now you've put that burden on all the family members who were not responsible for it. So to put this in perspective, imagine somebody says to the United States government, I'm canceling your $31 trillion worth of debt. And then the United States government chooses to throw somebody in prison that owes $10,000 in back taxes. Seems like a little bit of an imbalance there, right? You're talking government systems. But this is the idea. That much debt versus, what some, versus a small debt. A big debt versus a small debt. Seems absurd. So in chapter 18, verse 31, the other servants see what's going on here. They know that the one guy's been forgiven. They know that the other one's been thrown in prison. And they go to the master and say, do you see what's going on here? Now remember, this is part of a community teaching. So the other servants getting involved is pretty significant. It also goes in line with that passage that David was talking about where what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and, and what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The, these are people going to the master and saying, do you see what's going on here? It's that connection of the community to, to God. Um, so there's this community context. And the king says there will be a reckoning. Then after he had summoned the first man, the king calls in the first servant. He said, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back everything that was owed. Now instead of just being sold into slavery, which by the way, was a common practice in the day. If you owed a debt you couldn't pay, you could then become the slave of somebody. This is in the book of Leviticus. It's, it was common. It's not slavery as we think about in this country but you would then become the servant of that person and each day that you worked would pay back part of your debt until your debt was paid. So it was, it was actually a socially acceptable thing to become somebody's servant to pay back the debt. 
So instead of having that where he and his family were sold to then pay back a debt, now he's in prison and being tortured. So it's definitely worse off for him the second time than it would have been the first time. Matter of fact, he's going to be in prison and tortured until he could pay back his debt, it says, right? Everything he owed. So it's life or 32,000, no, 130 something thousand years. We'll call it a life sentence because he's not going to be able to pay that back. Jesus ends the parable and the lesson of the kingdom with a very stern warning. So also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. So notice we're back to that community context. Peter asks the question, and Jesus gives a parable, and then he looks at his disciples and he said, listen, let me give you an insight into this parable. The king is the father. The servants are the little ones, the sheep, the disciples, us. Which servant are, are you like the wicked servant? I guess not which servant are you because one was just thrown in jail. Are you like the wicked servant or are you willing to be gracious like the king was? Which way are you going to act? And it's harsh. Church family, we have a calling to be a forgiving people. It is not an option. It is part of who we are called to be through the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been forgiven. How dare we not forgive others? I can't get more blunt than to say to not forgive is to slap God in the face when you think of the mercy he showed us. We have a calling and a duty to be a forgiving people. There's no place for harboring bitterness in the church of God. There's no place for unforgiveness in the church of God. And anybody who calls themselves a child of God and yet is unable or unwilling to forgive someone who offends them needs to spend some time wrestling with God and asking God to teach them what mercy means. It's never appropriate to lack mercy outside the walls of the church, inside the walls of our church, with our spouses especially. So you have to realize something. It's easier to forgive people you don't know. Matter of fact, you can brush off people you don't know. It's really hard to forgive people who are close to you because when they hurt you, it cuts deep, doesn't it? Only people who are close can hurt deeply. It's never appropriate to withhold forgiveness when there's repentance. So what is repentance? Well, if you're looking at the parable, God forgave the sin, the debt, if you will, of the wicked servant in the first place, the, the billions of dollars. Even though <laughs> the servant said, made promises that he obviously couldn't keep, you could question his sincerity. Be patient with me, I'll pay it all back. Right? Was he really even sincere? Doesn't matter. It's not even addressed in Luke. The passage in Luke that we read, if your brother sins against you seven times in the same day and repents seven times, you have to forgive him. You'd be questioning that person's motives. And if they were really sorry, wouldn't you? Second time, definitely. By the seventh time, absolutely. 
And it doesn't say, well, you know, if he's truly, if, if his heart is really repentant, then you have to forgive him. Nope, if he repents, you forgive. If he repents, you forgive. You don't have the option. I don't have the option to know their heart the way God does. We just have the obligation to forgive. Now, I think the other thing that's hard about this is it's not a shallow surface, okay, I forgive you. You ever say that and not really mean it? Let's be honest. Don't have to raise your hands or anything, but I forgive you rolls off the tongue really easy. There's a difference between saying it and meaning it, right? The way Jesus phrased it at the end of Matthew 18 was, but if you don't forgive others, well, um, sorry, I don't want to go, it was, you have to forgive from the heart, 1835. So also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from his heart. In other words, you sincerely forgive them. And we're going to talk about what that means in just a minute. But we visited this concept of forgiveness before in Matthew. Matter of fact, Matthew 6.14. If you forgive others their offense, your heavenly father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your father will not forgive your offenses. Another bold blanket statement that's just meant to slap us and make us say, okay, listen, forgiveness is that important to God. We have to be doing this. It even shows up in the prayer that Jesus prayed with his disciples. And Eric, I appreciate you reading the Lord's Prayer this morning from Matthew. In Luke, um, it says the same thing abbreviated here. Jesus said, when you pray, say, Father, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone in debt to us and do not bring us into temptation. Do you see how Luke's account ties together the sin and the debt? Let's take that equation, let's plug that into our parable, and let's understand what's really being taught by Jesus in this parable. It's not about the money. It's about what's been forgiven and the mercy that God has shown. How can we not forgive somebody for an offense they caused us when God has forgiven us for every offense we ever caused him when we call on his name? When we surrender our life to him, when we allow Jesus to be Lord of our lives, he takes every sin that we've ever committed and he wipes it away. It's that $60 billion debt you could never repay. How could we not forgive somebody else's debt, somebody else's sin? when they hurt us that one time or that seven times or those 77 times. <laughs> There's no way we could ever pay the debt that we owed for our sins. That's why Jesus came, right? And we want to think that we're good enough to get into heaven, that we're good enough to be on God's good side, that we're good enough for God to accept us. And the reality is we could never pay that price. That's why Jesus came. And he wiped out our debt. He was the payment or the propitiation for our sins. He paid the price that we couldn't pay to grant us freedom and pardon because of his mercy, not because we deserve it. And if God has granted that type of mercy to us, how dare we, how dare we not offer grace and mercy to our brothers and sisters? We're to forgive the way our Heavenly Father forgives. Well, how does he forgive? 
For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He removes our sins from us. It's almost like the slate is wiped clean. So if you're using that analogy and you have 77 times in mind, well, if you think about the way that God treats us, every time we sin and we repent, he wipes the slate clean. You're never going to get to 77 times because you're starting with a blank slate every time you repent. He actually forgives and forgets, Isaiah 43, 25. I am the one, I sweep away your transgressions for my own sake and remember your sins no more. How many of you heard the phrase forgive and forget? Right. How many of you know that that's totally impossible? If you think of forgetting the way we think of forgetting, like I forgot where I put my glasses, like I, for, I forgot my phone at somebody's house, if you think of forgetting in that way, it's totally impossible. If you think of it in the way that it's meant to be thought of, as like a legal contract, for instance, um, if you've ever had a loan, car loan, house loan, something like that, right? You go into debt with, the, with that lender. And when you're done and you make your final payment, they send you a letter, right? And that letter says that your debt has been satisfied. It's called a lien release, right? You're free from that loan. You get that piece of paper. Do they have the right to come and collect any more money from you? Why not? Because the debt's been canceled. When you think of it in that way, to forgive and forget is to forgive and not hold it against somebody. You can't go back and charge on that account and say, you owe me. <laughs> or remember that time? Or something stupid like I did, remembering what they did before and then not being willing to forgive again. <laughs> forgive and forget is what God does. When he says he remembers our sins no more, he does not automatically get amnesia. He is an all-knowing God. He doesn't all of a sudden forget things. It means that he chooses not to bring them up against us any further, anymore. That's what it means to forgive and forget the way God does. See, you and I cannot just flip a switch and forget the hurt that we felt. Can we be real about that? When somebody hurts you, depending upon who it is in the circumstance, it can hurt for a long, long time. But we still have to be willing to forgive and not hold it against that person. How many times? Seven times in a day, 77 times, 70 times, seven times, doesn't matter. How much has God forgiven you? And then use that as a standard for how much you must be willing to forgive them. Forgiveness and forgetting are not the same. We can forgive even if we struggle forgetting. Forgiveness and feelings are not the same. We can forgive even if we still feel hurt. Forgiveness and consequences are not the same. We can be forgiven and still have to face the consequences of what we've done that are wrong. A great example of that would have to be David, right? King David, not Elder David. King David, right, sees a woman on a roof, takes her, has an affair with her, finds out she's pregnant, sends her husband out on the battlefield to get killed, and then takes her into his 
harem. That's a horrible thing. That's a dark spot in the history of Israel and in David's life. The consequences of that, David did repent. Read your Psalms. Read Psalm 50s. Read the 50s, the whole section. David did repent. Nathan, the prophet, approached him about it. And God kept him and restored him to his position, but he lost that child. He prayed and he fasted that God would spare the child, and God took the life of the child that was born in that relationship. There is a difference between forgiveness and consequences. We can be forgiven but still be held accountable to the, the things that we've done. It's not, a, it's not a clean slate as far as that goes. It's a clean slate as far as not being, um, having it held against us forever and having that choke hold on us and strangling us. In any case, we're commanded, not encouraged, we're commanded to forgive and to forgive again and to forgive again and again and again and again. This is what it means to be kingdom people. It's what it means to live in a kingdom way. I want to read for you a passage. Clearly, those who are bitter and refuse to forgive a wrong they have experienced are under indictment from God and will be punished. Yet it must also be admitted that forgiveness is not an easy thing to do, especially when one has undergone serious wrongs like physical or sexual abuse. Christ is not saying that forgiveness must be instantaneous. It is a process often demanding a great deal of time, sometimes even counseling. Still, mercy and forgiveness should at all times be the goal for which we strive. Moreover, this is a community and not just an individual responsibility. Reconciliation must be the goal of all, and when we are deeply hurt, we need the counsel and help of our brothers and sisters in our church family. Hmm. You should have realized this story. There's a side note that's very graphic that I think will help you understand why forgiveness is so important. When that second servant went, when that first servant, excuse me, went to the second servant, he grabbed the servant around the throat, And threatened him, right? And then because of his actions, he ended up, the, the first servant ended up imprisoned and being tortured. Lack of forgiveness puts a chokehold on the person we refuse to forgive. We strangle people that we refuse to forgive. And for us, it creates a prison that tortures us. You were offered freedom through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Who is it that you are not willing to share that same freedom with? You were offered mercy by your Father in heaven. Who is it that you are not willing to offer mercy to? Is there somebody in your life that you just can't forgive? That's, at least that's what you say, I can't forgive. <laughs> because I'll tell you what Jesus says. He says, you must forgive. That may mean you have a lot of work to do to work through it, but it's not optional. If God values you enough, values you enough to forgive your wrongs so you can be set free, I want you to realize that you end up valuing and loving your neighbor as yourself when you choose to show them that same mercy and compassion that your Father has on you. 
So let me ask you, is there somebody you've been strangling with unforgiveness? Let go. Let go. Are you or someone you know imprisoned by the inability or unwillingness to forgive someone else? Freedom is available if you'll just learn to do what God says. If you're really struggling forgiving someone, just give you one suggestion. The first thing we want to do is beat ourselves up over it. It's hard sometimes to wrestle through the feelings of the hurt versus the act of forgiveness. Try praying for the person. It's amazing how God can reveal your own heart and what needs to change when you spend time on your knees for the person you struggle forgiving. It's a great, it's a great way to understand mercy. Jesus kind of summed it up this way in Matthew 7, 12. Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. For this is the law and the prophets. We demand forgiveness from others. We want it. Are we willing to offer it? We want forgiveness and mercy from God. Are we willing to offer the same to others? And that's the lesson that Jesus wants his community to know, that we are called to a life of forgiveness. We are called to be a people of forgiveness. It's not an option. It's what we must be doing. Let's pray. Father, my heart is heavy for people that I know who are imprisoned by the inability to forgive. And I'm also burdened, Lord, by the people who are being strangled by the unforgiveness offered them. Father, I know that I am sometimes very slow to want to forgive an offense. So I pray that you would teach me and that you would teach each one of us here how to live in a way that reflects the mercy and the grace and the love that you've shown us. Teach us to forgive others the way you forgive us. Father, if we can't comprehend the fact that you would even forgive us, help us to understand the mercy and just to grow in the knowledge of what you've done for us. And bring us to the point where we are known as a people who forgives offenses and that demonstrates mercy to our brothers and sisters. We pray for this, for your sake, for your kingdom, that your kingdom would be built. In Jesus' name, amen.